as far as the eye can see, there is like a red line of that oil going right across the Gulf of Mexico. It is endless. The turtle's coming up for air, and when it does, it's gulping the surface and it's picking up that oil that's floating on the surface. So it's taking it into so its, its body. So it's taking it into its body, and of course, if you're, if you're drinking oil, it's not, not good for the digestive system, so he's, he's in distress. This oil spill couldn't have come at a worse time. With spring breeding season barely underway, the impact it could have on the animal population is being called unimaginable. Well, with the British Petroleum oil spill, the size of San Diego County looming off the coastline, the results could be devastating. If you put one drop of oil on a bird, that area now wicks in salt water, and the entire bird can get wet, lose their waterproofing, have a problem uh, diving underwater to forage for fish and food, and, uh, and starve to death. The wetland is where the food chain starts, and the oil will contaminate that, killing the microorganisms and algae, then the isopods and crabs, which the bird and other animals feed on. The oil essentially shuts down the whole ecosystem or food web at the very base or fundamental level. So, so this is a big problem. The cleanup is, is, is going to be difficult and uh, not necessarily uh, something that we can recover from quickly. What I want people to know is this isn't Katrina. This is not Armageddon. The farther you get from the spill, that chocolate milk looking spill st starts breaking up into smaller pieces and it, it looks, uh, for someone who has ever had diesel fuel in their bilge and pumped it overboard, it gets looking more and more like diesel fuel the farther away you get from it. Oil hits the beach. Hello? There's oil on the beach. Secondly, there won't be any people on the beach. Yes! That's a positive. Third thing, I might be able to keep my lights on at night because there won't be any turtles on the beach. The turtles will be smart enough not to show up. And at some point, the beach will fix itself. Tammy Mines was surfing a stylist blog the other day and stumbled upon a matter of trust. It's an organization that collects hair and fur and then turns it into all-natural oil-collecting booms. Some are made from recycled pantyhose, and some of the hair is turned into mats that sit on top of the water. They've collected hundreds of thousands of pounds of hair from all over the country. It works for the same reason you wash your hair every day, because hair collects oil. Mr. Brown, thanks for being with us. You've made some pretty stunning statements about this oil spill and the response by the president. Do, do you honestly believe the president of the United States wants this oil spill to spread, cause billions of dollars in damage, ruin people's livelihoods? To this oil slick approaching, you know, the, the Louisiana shore, according to certain uh, in NOAA and other places, if the winds are right, it'll go up the East Coast. This is exactly what they want, because now he can pander to the environmentalists and say, I'm going to shut it down because it's too dangerous. While Mexico and China and everybody else drills in the Gulf, we're going to get shut down. Friday, May 14th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osman. Hiya, Peter. Oh, oh, I've got a great story for oh, us. Oh, really? I can't right wait. at the yeah. top? Yeah, no chit-chat. Let's just get oh, right into okay. it. Okay, I'm all, all ears. Right. It started as a college student's snide response to an Iranian cleric's uh, assertion that scantily clad women cause earthquakes. We got to start right there. This uh, is this is what this this. Ayatollah somebody yeah, said. Yeah. Ayatollah uh, so right okay. said that that women clantily uh, scantily clad, clad or clantily clad. Yeah, or, could or, work both ways. Anyway, go ahead. Any of those cause earthquakes. Okay, but it, it uh, just did. Yeah, it was just a, just a, started as a, a response by this student, but got really big. Jen McCray. Okay. 
a self-described atheist, feminist, and geek trapped in Indiana. Mm. Trapped mm. in Indiana? That's not going to go very well in Bloomington. Took, ish- took issue with Hojatoleslam Kazim Sagedi's message during a recent Friday prayers in Tehran, the Iranian capital. I think the longer those ayatollahs name, the more difficult they are to pronounce, the more fundamental and, and nasty they get, you know, because nobody, everybody mispronounces their name. It would make me mad. All right. The hardline cleric who was standing in for Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, said women who dress provocatively, thereby tempting men, are to blame for the world's tremblers. Quote, when promiscuity spreads, earthquakes increase, he said. There is no way other than taking refuge in religion and adapting ourselves to Islamic behavior. McCrae, who is pursuing a double major in genetics and evolution, took to her blog, Blag Hag, Demanding, <laughs> demanding that the world's women band together in a scientific experiment to test the merits of Sadegi's hypothesis. And it's time, she said, for a boob quake. So on Monday, April 26th, this is in the past, mm-hmm. it already happened. Uh-huh. Uh, I will wear, she said, the most cleavage showing shirt I own. I encourage other female skeptics to join me and embrace the supposed supernatural power of their breasts or short shorts, if that's your preferred form of immodesty. She continued, with the power of our scandalous bodies combined, we should surely produce an earthquake. If not, I'm sure Sadegi can come up with a rational explanation for why the ground didn't rumble. April 26th has come and gone. David, did the earth move for you? Well, I'm, I'm very sorry, but I was on the beach at the Riviera, and uh, none of the ladies there had anything on their uh, their breasts, their boobs, as you say. And, but you were, and you were moved. Well, I was very, I was stunned, I was moved. I, I was, uh, uh, you know, I a was a hardliner. <laughs> I, I actually felt a little wrecked by the whole thing. Uh, no, now there goes the accent. You know, you start in France and you just begin to go back to well, South LA. Uh, well, that's, you know, well, they'll no, soon be the same. Nothing did happen. No, no nothing did nothing happen. Happened. And what it, what it points out to me and uh, you know, boob quakes uh, yeah. are entirely a local phenomenon, by the way. Yeah, and they are they are not an is they are not Islamic. They are not having nothing to do with with, with Islamic law. No. The, you know, I'm not at all a slammer of Islam. But the fact is, is that that guy, the original Ayatollah, wrote that little red book, you know, based on what you can do and what you can't do, you know, Islamic way the, of the life. The book of don't. Yeah, the book of don't, including the fact that if you were going to sodomize a donkey, it had to be out of the, uh, out of town. You've got to go beyond the boundary of the town to sodomize a donkey. That's okay. And I went, all right. All right, I'll just leave it there. I'm glad the rule is there. Yeah, I, I, it's just good for the people who are in town because there's a, it's pretty unsightly. See, there's another problem, which is if women who dress scandalously excite the donkeys, and then it's the, the sodomy that takes place in the suburbs oh, is difficult and is painful, at least. Way too sexually complex for me. I mean, I don't read that kind of magazine. Wow, Pete. Well, um, <laughs> since we're here at the bottom of the sea, maybe we could uh, visit... The uh, the cave of total hypocrisy. I know you must have something in there today. You know who lives there? Dr. George Wreckers. He's the uh-huh. foremost Christian anti-gay leader. He was just caught with a hooker from rentboy.com, the latest example of hypocrisy on the religious right. That's wait, right, wait, wait rentboy.com. Rentboy, wait a minute. Right, yeah, okay, now in... in, in in, now, in 1960, 1996, three re- researchers published a study in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology mm-hmm. about the links between homophobia and homosexual arousal. 
I've always suggested, look at this, 35 straight men identified as homophobic, records would be one of them, or, and 29 straight men that were not were shown heterosexual, lesbian, and gay male porn while their erectile responses were measured. Only the homophobic men showed an increase in penile erection to male homosexual stimuli, reported the researchers. There it is! Oh, really? Well, yeah, and... and, and, Slap that thing down. (laughs) Oh, no, I... That's the devil's monkey! My goodness. Uh, There goes another naval officer. It was was empirical evidence, said the study, um, Uh for a theory long uh, popular among psychoanalysts that those most hostile to gay people are often driven by terror and shame about their own desires. So it's not surprising that Dr. Wreckers, a major figure in anti-gay Christian right circles, has been caught traveling with a male prostitute who advertises on rentboy.com. It's becoming the latest in a long line of disgraced culture warriors. Now, the Wreckers br- br- bought the, brought the, he bought the escort who advertised his, quote, smooth, sweet, tight ass and perfectly built eight-inch cock on an all-expense-paid trip to Europe. He took him to Europe, right? <laughs> All right. Records later claimed in a Facebook message that he had hired the young man so as to save his immortal soul. Quote, like John the Baptist and Jesus. I know, I, I, I have <laughs> no, 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 wait like a minute. Like John the Baptist and Jesus. I have a loving Christian ministry to homosexuals and prostitutes in which I share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Meanwhile, on his own website, Wreckers offered a somewhat contradictory explanation, saying that he, quote, requires an assistant to lift his luggage in his travels because of an ongoing condition following surgery. Never mind the fact that when they were photographed at the airport together, it was Wreckers who was carrying the luggage. (laughs) He's carrying a lot more luggage now. Oh, he certainly is. Well, you know, the thing that bothers me most about that, because, you know, okay, Dr. Freud was right and all of that, and and yeah, sure, and that's why they keep falling into with a pit of despair of their own making. It's rentboy.com that worries me. I mean, where's that guy? Well, I mean, his name is Lucian. That's the, Lucian. the fellow yeah, Lucian, oh, yeah, yeah. who said that the deal he made, he wrote a contract with Rutgers. He has a copy of the contract. Mm-hmm. And basically, for $75 a day, he was to travel with him in Europe and give him an hour sexual massage and have two meals with him. Two meals, they, uh, 75 a day. Well, that's you know. not much. But he got, a, he got this big European, and he, and he got, yeah. his, got the chance to have his immortal soul saved. You know? Hey, that's worth $75 that, absolutely. a day. So, so here's the problem, Dave. Okay. Here's the problem. Which is, and I feel for guys like Rutgers, although I, I really am sorry for all of the, the harm that he does. I mean, look, this is a guy uh, who, who goes all over being paid top money to, to give, you know, to support anti-gay measures, okay? Uh, he was one of the two expert witnesses the state of Florida called in uh, in its bid to defend its ban on gay adoption. Gay people, he testified, would have less capability of providing the kind of nurturing and secure emotional involvement for children, as the Miami Herald reported. He was, wait a minute, he was an expert? He was an ex, they called him in as an expert opinion, and that was his expert that opinion? Was, well, it gets worse. Oh, right. okay. This is my, my favorite part, in a way, because it's, it's so sad. He also said, well, let me see, let me just, I just want to, I want to read this properly here. Uh, he also suggested that Native Americans be banned from adopting because they're prone to mental illness and substance abuse quote records they would tend to hang around each other he said so the children would be around a lot of other native americans who are doing the same sorts of things this is an expert speaking 
I mean, me hanging around people who were doing the same sorts of things. Which I think that's his problem, right? Going in. Yeah, yeah, but here is the big. Here's the thing: is that this is a man who believes that his homosexuality, his homosexual urges, are wicked. He does actually believe that it is the devil within him. He is mm-hmm. torn up. That's why he spends mm-hmm. so much time shouting about the evil. He can't come out of the closet. He is now. Rent Boy brought him right out there. And, of course, everything that he's connected with, he was one of the original Family Research Councils on the original board of the Family Research Council. They are now not only distancing themselves from him. They're, they're <laughs> going back to find out in their old records whether he was really ever on the board. I mean, oh. they are, they are, they're, the bus is coming, and they're just laying him right on the road. Here comes the old Christian denial. Bus. Down there in the gym, they're washing all those towels twice. For 15 years, Eddie Anderson, a farmer, has been a strict adherent of no-till agriculture. That's an environmentally friendly technique that all but eliminates plowing to curb erosion and the harmful runoff of fertilizers and pesticides. But not this year. Why? Well, on a recent afternoon, Mr. Anderson watched as tractors crisscrossing a rolling field, plowing and mixing herbicides into the soil to kill weeds where soybeans will soon be planted. Just as the heavy use of antibiotics contributed to the rise of drug-resistant supergerms, American farmers' near-ubiquitous use of the weed killer Roundup has led to the rapid growth of tenacious new superweeds just what we need, you know? We're a superpower, super tankers are breaking up, you know? Now, and we got the super dome, and now we've got, and we got super moms, which are cool, but now we've got super weeds. To fight them, Mr. Anderson and farmers throughout the East, Midwest, and South are being forced to spray fields with more toxic herbicides, pull weeds by hand, and return to more labor-intensive methods like regular plowing. So the whole frankenfood thing is putting people back to work, back to doing the farm drudgery that they thought the guys in the white coats at Monsanto, etc., was going to free them from. We're back to where we were 20 years ago, said Mr. Anderson. Uh, who will plow about one-third of his 3,000 acres of soybean fields this spring, more than he has in years. We're trying to find out what works. Farm experts say that such efforts could lead to higher food prices, oh good, lower crop yields, rising farm costs, and more pollution of land and water. Quote, It is the single largest threat to production agriculture that we have ever seen, said Andrew Wargo III, the president of Arkansas Association of Conservation Districts. The first resistant species to pose a serious threat to agriculture was spotted in a Delaware soybean field in 2000. Since then, the problem has spread, with 10 resistant species in at least 22 states infesting millions of acres, predominantly soybeans, cotton, and corn. The superweeds could temper American agriculture's enthusiasm for some genetically modified crops. You think so? Soybeans, corn, and cotton that are engineered to survive spraying with Roundup have become really standard in American fields. However, if Roundup doesn't kill the weeds, farmers have little incentive to spend the extra money for the special seeds. Oh, really? Roundup, originally made by Monsanto, but also sold by others under the generic name glyphosate, has been little short of a miracle chemical for farmers. Watch out for miracles when they're chemicals. It kills a broad spectrum of weeds, is easy and safe to work with, and breaks down quickly, reducing its environmental impact. 
all very well and good. Sales took off in the late 1990s after Monsanto created its brand of Roundup-ready crops that were genetically modified to tolerate the chemical allowing farmers to spray their fields to kill the weeds while leaving the crop unharmed. Of course, you know, all the uh, tree huggers that worry about frankenfood ask, well, if you're changing the genetic seed of the soybeans so it won't be hurt by Roundup, what's it going to do to me? And how long is it going to take to find out? But of course, there's the American ethos, the American logo. Just do it. Don't worry about the concomitants. Just do it! Today, Roundup-ready crops account for 90% of the soybeans and 70% of the corn and cotton grown in the United States. Let me repeat that. Roundup-ready crops, which are now causing super weeds to become abundant, they account for 90% of the soybeans, 70% of the corn and cotton grown in the United States. But farmers sprayed so much Roundup that weeds quickly evolved to survive it. What we're talking about here is Darwinian evolution in fast forward, said Mike Owen, a weed scientist at Iowa State University. Now, Roundup-resistant weeds like horseweed and giant ragweed are forcing farmers to go back to more expensive techniques that they have long ago abandoned. I mean, this is really kind of like uh, the new horror show, uh, Horseweed, giant ragweed, people running from the fields being chased by these, these genetic monsters. Mr. Anderson, the farmer, remember him, is wrestling with a particularly tenacious species of glyphosate-resistant pest called Palmer amaranth, or pigweed, whose resistance has, has become seriously infesting farms in western Tennessee, this year with pigweed. Well, maybe the weed was named after the pigs in the white coats and the business suits who dreamed up frankenfood in the first place. Pigweed can grow three inches a day and reach seven feet or more, choking out crops. It is so sturdy that it can damage harvesting equipment. Pigweed? In an attempt to kill the pest before it becomes that big, Mr. Anderson and his neighbors are plowing their fields and mixing herbicides into the soil. So it's all been for naught. That threatens to reverse one of the agricultural advantages that is bolstered by the Roundup Revolution. Minimum till farming. That's it. You don't have to till the earth as much because the plants don't have to worry about weeds because Roundup takes care of the weeds and the genetic change in the seed means they aren't screwed up by Roundup. By combining Roundup and Roundup-ready crops, farmers did not have to plow under the weeds to control them. That reduced erosion, the runoff of chemicals into waterways, and the use of fuel for tractors. Sounds good to me. If frequent plowing becomes necessary again, quote, that is certainly a major concern for our, our environment, says Ken Smith, a weed scientist at the University of Arkansas. In addition, some critics of genetically engineered crops say that the use of extra herbicides, including some old ones that are less environmentally tolerable than Roundup, belies the claims made by the biotechnology industry that its crops would be better for the environment. Remember the old herbicides? I had a guy on, the, uh, on Radio Free Oz many, many years ago who rode his horse across the United States. And when he got to Ohio and crossed Ohio, my home state, he heard not one songbird. They had all been killed by the DDT. The biotech industry is taking us into a more pesticide-dependent agriculture when they've already promised uh, something else, and, and we need to be going in the opposite direction, said Bill Fries, a science policy analyst uh, at the Center for Food 
food safety in Washington. So far, weed scientists estimate that the total amount of United States farmland affected by Roundup-resistant weeds is relatively small, 7 million to 10 million acres, according to Ian Heap, director of the International Survey of Herbicide-Resistant Weeds, which is financed by the agricultural chemical industry. So it could be more. I mean, are we going to believe their statistics? They're the one that told us that this was the savior. Everything was going to be cool. There, um, there are roughly 170 million acres planted with corn, soybeans, and cotton, the crops most affected. Roundup-resistant weeds are also found in several other countries, including Australia, China, and Brazil, according to the survey. Monsanto, which once argued that resistance would not become a major problem, now cautions against exaggerating its impact. It's a serious issue, but it's manageable. Sounds like BP talking about the oil spill, said Rick Cole, who manages weed-resistant issues in the United States for the company. No, he does weed spin. He's the weed spin doctor. Of course, Monsanto stands to lose a lot of business if farmers use less Roundup and Roundup-ready seeds. You're having to add another product with a Roundup to kill your weed, said Steve Doster, a corn and soybean farmer in Barnum, Iowa. So, Then, why are we buying Roundup-ready product? Now, that's a good question, Steve. Monsanto argues that Roundup still controls hundreds of weeds, but the company is concerned enough about the problem that it is taking the extraordinary step of subsidizing cotton farmers' purchases of competing herbicides to supplement Roundup. These people are totally fatutzed. They are paying farmers to buy their competitors' herbicides because their frankenfood doesn't work. Oi, oi, oi. Monsanto and other agricultural biotech companies are also developing genetically engineered crops resistant to other herbicides, and on and on and on. Bayer, those are the people that started with aspirin and now are giving us other headaches, is already selling cotton and soybeans resistant to glufosinate, another weed killer. Monsanto's newest corn is tolerant of both glyphosate and glufosinate, and other things that I find difficult to pronounce. And the company is developing crops resistant to dicamba, an older pesticide. Who makes up these names? Who are the bozos that sit around some table in New Jersey, or is it Delaware, making up these names? Dicamba. Sounds good to me. Put it on the ground. See what it does. Syngenta, here's another one, is developing soybeans tolerant of Callistro. Callistro sounds like one of those bad emperors in Rome. And Dow Chemical is developing corn and soybeans resistant to 2,4-D, a component of Agent Orange, the defoliant used in the Vietnam War. Governments, your friends, you see, that's what I have to say, or they will bury me. Don't you try to criticize, and don't you ever try to talk about their lies. I don't know what you've been told, but last time I checked, we had the right to say the things we mean and disagree and not have to face the guillotine. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. Patriot Act is the riot act with the PAT. What the really means is that they're watching you and that they're really watching me. And anyone who disagrees is sure to lose their liberties. A patriot has got to keep his mouth shut. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. 
child king and his army wing They are hell-bent on the conquest Our enemies on bended knees They're gonna see it always soon Because the freedom that they steal from us They try to export overseas And now our former enemies are free to live a life of tyranny The same as you or me And it's a crime Speak your mind And it's a crime whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't say a word Cause if you're her That plate is gonna Never made a contribution to the revolutionary man It's a crime To speak your mind And it's a crime Oh, don't say the word Cause if you heard that blade is gonna fall Once upon a time, and I guess we're talking about the good old days here, the CIA had to know a militant's name before putting him up for a robotic targeted killing. Now if the guy acts like a gorilla, it's enough to call in a drone strike. This is indeed part of the horror that we are bringing to the world. We used to have to know the poor bozo's name before we drilled him from, you know, from above. Now if he's acting like a gorilla... Come on! It's another sign of that once-limited, once-covert program to off-senior terrorist leaders has morphed into a full-scale, if undeclared, war in Pakistan. So we're at war with Pakistan. Now there's good news. And in a war, you don't need to know the name of someone on the other side before you take a shot. Yesterday, U.S. drone aircraft, for example, killed at least 24 suspected militants in two attacks in Pakistan's north, Waziristan. Waziristan, <laughs> I just can't stand it. It was the fourth drone missile strike on militants in northwest Pakistan, bordering Afghanistan, since a failed bid to set off a car bomb in New York's Times Square on May 1st. So they're definitely, they're, they're saying now, well, we're sure, and the Taliban sent him over here to set off the bomb, so we're just going to go kill everybody that looks like a militant. The United States is convinced, 
of course, that uh, Taliban militants allied with al-Qaeda and operating out of northwestern border regions like Waziristan was behind the attempted New York bombing. So, in the first of, of yesterday's two drone attacks, this was on Monday, more than 12 missiles were fired in Dakahel village, about 20 miles west of Maransha, North Waziristan. Oh, this is North Waziristan. I wonder if that's like the nice side, if that's on the right side of the tracks or the right side of the drone. Quote, three missiles hit a vehicle and three militants sitting in it were killed, said an intelligence agency official in the region who declined to be identified. Because if they got his name, they might shoot him too. The drones then fired a barrage of missiles at a nearby militant compound, killing at least 11 more, according to a second security official. Militant compound. Okay, but. Things are bad in Pakistan. You look up, you know, you give the sky the finger, you're a militant, you're dead. But across the board in Afghanistan, where we're kind of officially at war, the rules for launching an airstrike have become tighter than a bald fist. Dropping a bomb from above is now a tactic of last resort, even when U.S. troops are under fire. Commanders are reluctant to authorize airstrikes even under those conditions. That's because they've been getting a lot of bad press for all the innocent women and children that we've been killing. In Pakistan, however, the opposite has happened. Starting in the latter days of the Bush administration and accelerating under the Obama presidency, drone pilots have become more and more free to launch their weapons. Drone pilots. I'm told that they are sitting in refrigerated rooms in Las Vegas doing the killing. I mean, totally frightening, you know. After a little gambling, a little liquor, a little prostitutes, let's go in and kill people who act like gorillas. Uh, Orwell could not have dreamed this up. Quote, we've had an expanded target set for some time now. I I love military talk. Expanded target set. More people looking or acting or smelling like gorillas are getting fried from these drones. Uh, So we have an expanded target set now. Given the danger these groups pose and their relative inaccessibilities, these kind of strikes, precise and effective, have become almost like the cannon fire of this war. They're no longer extraordinary or even unusual, admitted one American official. Yeah, the thing about cannon fire also is it takes out anybody it hits. You know, in the Civil War, you didn't know the other guy's name either, but at least you could see each other as you plowed each other under. This is war at a distance. It's like John McCain at 50,000 feet carpet bombing people he never met. Of course, he actually did get to meet a couple of them uh, unexpectedly. Bob Dylan's back with the biggest surprise of all. He's learned to sing. Sing real good and real high class. He's singing opera, that's right. It's Bob Dylan at the Met. Here Bobby singing Oreos from Scorsese, Coppola, B-Day, all in Barbarian and German. It's just like the 60s. You can't understand a word Bob is singing, and that's when he's at his best. It's a beautiful album with pictures of Bob wearing a turban, a cowboy hat, a yarmulke, and a crown of thorns. And who's that singing the love duet with him from Car Wash? Joan Baez. Jim Neighbors. So if you're a Dylan fan... And who wasn't? Here's one record you won't have to take to church and smash with a hammer. Available at Crap's Last Tapes, the Cutout Circus, and all 93 shoplifters markets. It's Bob Dylan. At the Met. <laughs> Well, this Goldman Sacker crap swindle is going to be with us for a long time. So I want us all to take a long, careful look at it so we can understand what's going on. We have to remain in context if we're going to figure out, you know, how to take care of one of the, well, really, one of the greatest scandals and one of the greatest challenges since you and I came to this planet.
In December 2006, Goldman Sachs embarked on a frantic effort to shed billions of dollars in risky mortgage securities and purchase exotic insurance to protect itself against what it had concluded could be the collapse of America's housing market. So, see, they saw that the housing market was collapsing. Instead of getting on the top of 85 Broad Street, where their big building is, and shouting it to the world so that everybody could be warned, they decided instead to hide it, conspire, and make some money off the problem. Yet for nine months, until September 20th, 2007, the Wall Street giant didn't disclose its actions in key filings with the Security and Exchange Commission, in telephone conferences with analysts, or in the press. Mm Mm-mm, naughty, naughty. By the time Goldman finally began to divulge its strategies to the SEC, credit markets were freezing up and the investment bank was well on its way to making billions of dollars in revenue from its negative bets known in the industry as shorts. (laughs) Ha ha, coming in shorts and quartz. Consider this contrast between the firm's public face and its private maneuvering. On March 7, 2007, Goldman's chief financial officer, David Vinyar, chaired an internal meeting of the company's risk committee. Notes of the meeting report that the committee discussed the accelerating meltdown among subprime mortgage lenders, the progress of the company's mortgage division in closing down every subprime exposure possible, and signs that subprime rows were beginning to affect commercial real estate. So the writing was on the wall. In fact, they were doing the writing. Shira Fredman, a Vice President of the company's finance division also sent Vinier talking points in advance of the firm's quarterly earnings announcement, stressing that its short bets had enabled Goldman's mortgage division to earn $266 million during the quarter despite the deteriorating subprime market. So people are taking it in the behind all over the world, and these guys are doing just fine. During the March 13th conference call with analysts, however, Vinyar made no mention of Goldman's short bets or the $266 million gain. Instead, he said the market had seen a little bit of nervousness, but the housing weakness had been so far largely contained. What should be largely contained is Mr. Vinyar. He should be contained in some great big prison and be somebody's bitch. It's still unclear whether the federal laws designed to protect consumers from deceptive marketing required Goldman to reveal more information earlier than it did. Well, Goldman spokesman Samuel Robinson said, We are not required to disclose individual trading positions. Rather, we disclose the financial performance of the firm. In this regard, net revenues from the residential mortgage business represented about 1% of the firm's total revenue in 2007. Let me kind of translate what Sam Robinson said, which is, right now it's still legal for us to lie and cheat and not let you know what's happening. We're coming at you, but you can't see it. The wagers, however, (laughs) these wagers, these short bets, save Goldman billions in losses. SEC disclosure rules revolve around the idea that information that's material to a company's or an investment's fortunes should be disclosed, but it's not clear whether Goldman will face legal liability uh, uh, for choosing not to reveal its exit plan to its shareholders who benefited from the strategy. I think that the new feeling in Congress, this populist revolt against these criminal banks, may work in Goldman's saxocrap uh disfavor, shall we say. They are on the defensive where they very well belong. We should send them into the end zone, in fact. However, Goldman's limited disclosures in the offering circulars it gave the investors that bought its mortgage securities could cause legal problems. It is already causing legal problems. 
At issue is whether Goldman's bets against the housing market were so material or relevant to investors that their disclosures could have convinced them not to buy its products. Yeah, they... Paulson and his hedge fund got together the crappiest possible investments and sold it to these people. And Goldman said, these are a number one. So I think, yeah, maybe, maybe their lying and hiding did have some effect upon the viability of these assets. You know that whole towns, well, Iceland went down over this. Towns all over Germany and, and Norway collapsed. They all bought these bad bonds. So Without purchasers for its risky uh, securities, Goldman's exit strategy would have flopped. So if they didn't lie to the people and get them to buy it, they'd have to hold this stuff on their books. Well, materiality, i.e., whether this is material to the issue in such cases, is a complicated, mixed question of law and fact decided on a case-by-case basis, said Frank Partnoy, a University of San Diego law professor, and we don't know the answer until a judge rules. That's why Goldman disclosed in late 2007, but not earlier, that it had been net short for most of the year. Company spokesman Sam Robinson, here we go again, said companies don't report on every single area of activity in every quarter. Backtrack, backtrack, cut and fold. He said that the September 2007 disclosure was in response to intense investor and analyst interests. Widows and orphans were pounding on his door, crying and dying on his threshold. Goldman has stressed that it limited its mortgage dealings to qualified institutional investors such as pension funds and insurance companies that have fewer legal rights to disclosure about securities risks. <laughs> pension funds. Wait a minute. Isn't that the money they're supposed to give me after 40 years of loyal work? Huh? I'm not, uh, my pension plan um, administrators doesn't have the right to find out that he's being sold crap by these mumsers. Goldman's decision to retreat from the cresting housing market came at a senior level meeting Vineyard organized on December 14, 2006, after its mortgage traders reported losses for 10 straight days. It only took 10 days for them to decide to short the whole thing. The day after the meeting, Goldman Mortgage uh, Chief Dan Sparks, he's the one that appeared before uh, Senator Levin. Remember, Levin said, this is a shitty deal. You kept selling these people these shitty deals. This, the, this term, shitty deal, of course, appeared in a Goldman uh, Sachs of Crap internal memo. Dan Sparks was the guy who said, well, uh, you know, really, it's just a matter of risk. Hum, ha, hum, ha, hum, ha. It was his poor performance that I think created this whole turnaround in Congress, even amongst the Wall Street-loving Republicans. Well, uh, so the day after the meeting, Goldman, Goldman Mortgage Chief Dan Sparks instructed his team in an email to reduce the company's inventory of billions of dollars in risky mortgage loans to cash out losing bets that home prices would keep rising to monitor the current value of its offshore mortgage securities more closely and to be ready for the good opportunities that are coming. Three days later, Fabrice Touré, the mortgage trader, who's now a defendant in the SEC suit, wrote that his unit had a big short on. You mean he walked around the office with a big short on? I mean, did he go into those martini bars with a big short on and nobody noticed it? Come on! As subprime mortgages lenders began to collapse under the weight of rising loan defaults, Goldman was cashing in. In February 22, 2007, email Sparks told trader Josh Birnbaum, Michael Swenson, and David Lehman to cash in $3 billion in bets. 
You called the trade right. Now monetize a lot of it, he wrote. You guys are doing very well. During the same period, Goldman marketed more than $11 billion in securities backed by risky mortgages, $4.8 billion in subprime loans to questionable borrowers. Questionable means they didn't ask him the right questions. And $6.2 billion in so-called Alt-A loans, a slightly less risky category whose borrowers had low credit scores, uh, according to categories that are considered risky by the SEC. Look, they were, lo- they were giving mortgages to people's pets. I mean, my canary owned three condominiums in Chula Vista. Goldman's short bets, which, is, which it began to place as early as 2005, were carried out using insurance-like contracts known as credit default swaps. Goldman would pay an annual premium that usually accounted to 1% to 2% of the face value of the contract, but collected big if the securities collapsed. And they did. The newly released Goldman records show that it executed the strategy by doing this, selling bundles of securities in the Cayman Islands. At least 16 of these deals included exotic bets on subprime securities in which Goldman would profit if the underlying loans defaulted. Goldman stood to make $2 billion in one deal known as Hudson Mezzanine SP. Now, mezzanine on Wall Street refers to kind of the shadowy investment characters. Those are the ones you step down to to get things done. Hudson Mezzanine. The securities initially received the top investment grade rating of AAA, but has been reduced to junk status as of today. Junk, junk, junk. You know, Bebop being so indigenous, you know, being so real and being so local, even when he has gone beyond good and evil. I mean, above Fresno is beyond good and evil. Sure, man. Reminds <laughs> me. That's right, man. I mean, hey, I'm he, still here. Uh-oh. You, are, you know, your Bebop, music is gone yeah, and you're still here? I'm still here. My Unbelievable. music is gone. I, we didn't know you could exist without that underscore. I, I thought I could not exist without that music. Bebop, you know, we just recently, David and <laughs> Phil and I, were in Houston just two days ago. Oh, I love Houston, oh, man. And we were... We were there to see the Ring trilogy, but not not the not the Tolkien Ring trilogy, but the Wagner Ring trilogy done by the Houston uh, Opera. Yeah, they, it and, was but, a new version of it. But a though, new version Pete, because um, people are that? so well because they're so interested in what's happening. It's now called the Fall of Enron. Oh man, yeah, that's in all the news now. Yeah, and I understand there's even a touring show up your way. You may have seen it yourself. I want to read you from the program, try to explain to you what was going on. Now, you guys have got to tell me if I got this right. Okay. Okay. There's a bunch of these women come on in the beginning, right, in this kind of cave, and they are they represent, there's 881 of them, uh-huh. and they represent the offshore subsidiaries of, of Enron, right? Very romantic. Very And they're, they're hiding the gold, right? Yeah, and, right. And from the investors who don't know they've lost it yet. I love this part. And then Jeffrey Schilling, the CEO, plays Loki. And he comes in and he steals it from them with an accounting <laughs> ruse, right? Yeah. And then, okay, then the devil, played by Fastow. Oh, very good casting. Very good casting. He comes up against George W., who plays Wotan, right? Yeah. All right, now, now Ken Lay is Siegfried, and he finds Brunhilde, who represents the regulated energy industry, encirculated in a ring of cold regulations. She can't move, right? Yeah, right. So he kisses her with the dark kiss of deregulation. Oh, I love that. And she is freed. She is taken off the books. See, there she goes. And then the... And now, now the Valkyries, the Valkyries come in on their winged horses, and they ride quickly out of the theater and try and cash their Enron philanthropic checks before they go bad. But they don't. 
They lose, right? Yeah, I got and, it. Okay, then here's here's what happens now. Let's see the foil in the that's, that's Henry Waxman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Henry, Henry Waxman now comes the fifth, in. The fifth, the fifth. Well, he swallowed his mustache. He swallows his mustache. <laughs> he he is playing. He plays the ultimate good and evil, and yeah. he kills Ken Lay as Siegfried, and he reduces Brunhilde <laughs> to, to regulation. She yeah. can no longer be off the books, and then Ragnarok. Which I'm beginning is, to lose you now, man. Yeah, yeah. Ragnarok, which is the huge yeah. town of, of, of Houston, goes up in flames, and the Bush administration falls. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, that's, it was a great option. Great, man. That's uh, good. Much better than our little theater production up here. Oh, yeah, really? No, it was nothing. Besides, the actors, their teeth were chattering so hard they couldn't sing at all. Well, we were really impressed, and at the end of it, the whole theater went dark because they couldn't pay their Enron electricity bill. That's right. right. They probably yeah. impounded your cars, right? They, they did. They just pounded them, in fact. And yeah. they, they squeezed them in these little balls and, and sold, they sold them, them to China. They sold them to along, China. Along with, apparently, 50,000 tons of a crumpled Twin Towers. Except you guys this, lead an exciting life out well, there on the street, man. Well, yeah. there, when we went out to the parking lot to get our car, there was this one guy, man, with you know named Baxter. And he did not look good at all, man. He had the windows up and he had a thirty-eight. He was like, and he was crying. He was saying something about offshore money. And then that was the last I heard. It was really... poor guy. Poor guy. He showed up on CNN later. Well, you see, everybody gets famous, man. Well, everybody gets one of those crawls. Right, everyone. One crawl below. One crawl, that's all you get now. Five, four, three, two, beep. Erpy iPad app presents Exorcism in Your Daily Life. Registered trademark. Derivatives. Let's join Billy and his dad over in their typical Billville home breakfast nook, where Billy is explaining... Uh, you see, Dad, my philosophy teacher wants me to, to produce this music video about derivatives and, and Freud, and, and I need to go practice ultimate ring ball with Bruce. Well, Bobby, I'm not allowed to talk about Freud anymore. Really? Or, or ring ball. Gosh. But, but derivatives are something else. They sure are, Dad. Uh, what are they? It's easy, buddy. You see, derivatives are contracts whose value is determined by, well, by something else. That's very philosophical, Dad. I'm trying. You sure are, Dad. So, what's a contract? Well, Teddy, for that, we'll have to doodle dee dee doodle 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 do on down to see Big Bill Brown there at what's left of the First National Bingo Bank. Golly! doodle 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 well, hi, Mr. Brown. I'm here again. You sure are, buddy. What's it this time? Another question about the size of my fat bonus? I don't want to have to think about that ever again, sir. Mm-hmm. But but anyway, what's a derivatives contract, Mr. Brown? Oh, well, that's easy, son. It's a collateralized debt obligation, and that's a valuable product we bankers sell to hedge against risks. Do I have one, Mr. Brown? You won't even know what one is until you get an M. MBA, Bobby. Oh. You know, sometimes these entirely digital things we buy and sell here are called interest rate swaps, and, and they help to protect us against abrupt changes in interest rates. You mean like the 29% my mom pays on her Kmart card? There's nothing your mom can do about that, Bobby. Oh. I, I expect she'll have to lose her car. What about our food, Mr. Brown? Well, well, for that, Teddy, you better go see Farmer Jones down at the Chemical Corn Exchange Department.
Doodly 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 do. Well, Bobby, you see, I grow onions, and onions are the only cash vegetable crop that you can grow, but you can't bet on. I I I can't. No, sir. And there's a fine U.S. federal law to protect you from doing that. Golly. <laughs> what if Goldman Sachs a crap could sell those insane Wall Street gamblers and money-mad banking moguls on a deal to bet on the size of my bulging onion crop? Oh, is that like a, a metaphor, Farmer Jones? Stop imagining things, Bobby, and listen. All right. There are a lot of people who only care about the stuff they can bet on. Oh, that's very futuristic. Yep, it sure is. Let's say you bet the bank I'll grow 390 tons of onions. Gosh, okay. What'll that cost me, sir? 390 pink Monopoly dollars and eventually the whole international economy. Wow. Uh, Even the euro? That's sick. It sure is. Now, if you bet that I'm going to grow more tons than that, you go long. I'd really like to, Farmer Jones, but I'm only 13. I mean, place your bet, boy. Oh. Or you can go short. And sell my onion contract to some other bozo. Oh, how can I sell it if I didn't buy it? Confusing, ain't it, Bubba? Yeah. And, and you know, that's the way they like it. Mm. But for the real poop, you need to Skype our most prominent futurologist, old Doc Infermo, no. the famous exorcist yeah. down at the Homeland Infirmary Agency. doodle 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 Well, so, Doc, I, I don't know what a derivative is, and, and I'm confused about contracts and obligatory collateralized d- d- debts, and, and well, well, what do you predict will happen, Dr. Infermo? We're doomed. Golly, again? Derivatives, another exorcism in your daily life iPad app from Herpy. Gonna come tumbling down, yeah. Computerized world, I'm gonna come tumbling down. Gonna be a right, gonna be a real mess downtown. Gonna find a little rider and take away back in the hills. Oh, yeah. Find a little rider and take away back in the hills. Gonna carry my shotgun. That's how I wanna pay my bills. In no 7-Eleven, I got no mini market. No 7-Eleven, no mini market. You know if I'm a dinner When you hear my old hound dogs barking We'll bark for my boys Oh yeah Government man, I'm gonna tell me how to live my life. Oh, yeah. No government man, I'm gonna tell me how to live my life. 
me sway back on my woods I'm gonna flash my knife Material world Gonna come a-tumbling down Computerized world Gonna come a-tumbling down If I'm a rider Gonna get right out of this town Gonna head way back Back in the woods Gonna head way back Back in the woods Nobody gonna find me Back in the woods Nobody gonna find me In the wilderness Here's a nice take on the flash crash by former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich. Ninety minutes before the end of trading Thursday, that's last week, the U.S. stock market almost melted down. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped nearly 1,000 points. The market regained ground before the end like a giant 747 narrowly averting a crash landing. Regardless of why it happened, it's further evidence that the nation's and the world's capital markets have become a vast, out-of-control casino in which fortunes can be made or lost in an instant, which would be fine except for the fact that most of us have put our life savings there. Pension funds, mutual funds, school endowments, the value of all of this depends on a mechanism that can lose a trillion dollars in minutes without anyone having a clear idea why. Yeah, who would go into a casino and put your pension funds on red? So much of the market now depends on computer programs and mathematical models that no one fully understands. So much of the trading is in the hands of a few people whose fat thumbs or monetary carelessness might sink the economy. So much of global wealth now depends on who can move their money quickest at the slightest provocation. We are are toying with financial disaster every day. The luck or foolishness of a few traders and inside knowledge and information that some possess and others don't, combined with the ultra-high-speed computers, put us all at the whim of a system whose risk is way out of proportion to any public benefits. Bob Reich is right on. We are handing over our hard-earned pension funds, bonds, taxes, whatever it may be that we that, that is squeezed out of us or, or taken away with our consent in order to protect us in our old age is being run into this casino where a bunch of, you know, a bunch of young Turks are betting, are betting against us, basically. We are known, by the way, as weak hands on Wall Street because we don't have any real inside knowledge. The whole thing is corrupt. The whole thing has to be thoroughly reformulated. We've got to go back to the Glass-Steagall Act, which doesn't allow banks to become investment houses. That's nice. I go down to the Mr. Brown at the bank, give him my $10, and he takes it and puts it in a derivative, um, you know, anti-bet-on-credit-swap, uh, toxic, whatever. And I'm dead. You know, I go there the next day, well, Mr. Brown, where's my $5? Well, I'm sorry, but the credit swaps went south, and uh, you're toxic, Billy. So we've got to bring some serious common sense back to these markets. This is the populism. This, I believe, is the real teabag revolt. I don't think those bozos on the far right know anything about it, but that kind of populist swell, I believe, is going to bring this kind of needed regulation um, into existence. 
Well, that's the best of the best of Radio Free Oz for this week. The Oz Team, I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osman. Ones and zeros under the command of John Cumming, our webmaster, Tom Gedwillow, Phil Fountain. The graphics man, head of Oz Design Group, Dave Maloney, our audio engineer, Bill McIntyre, produces the whole thing, and Scott Wilde is our social media guru. See you soon.